But here we are, Ephesians chapter 2 today, continuing this study. So blessed by this study. Uh, Thankful for how the Lord is just ministering to my heart. We pick up here in chapter 2. We, we, uh, in chapter 1, we learned of the, God's perfect plan for salvation. And that it, was, it is the solution to the greatest problem. And now in chapter 2, we are going to look at what the problem is. A bit, and, and really, you could make that a plural, what the problems are. Uh, ultimately, the problem is sin, uh, but we're going to look at some specifics of what chapter 2 will break down for us in these first seven verses of the problem of the past, the blessing of the present, and the hope of the future. So in verse 1, as it says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. You, and you, meaning all of you, meaning the people that this letter is addressed to, which as we have already established is all of us, believers, the saints, those who are in Christ. And Paul is writing this as a a reminder, and you need to remember this. Yes, you have this great blessing, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and there's all this tremendous strength and blessing that comes from being in Christ that we learn much about in chapter one, and then there's this great prayer over the church to close out chapter one. Now, Paul is giving a reminder to say, and you, hold on a minute, and you, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget. All of you, both Jew and Gentile, those who are in Christ, you, he made alive. You did not make yourself alive. You, he made alive. He did the work. It's a reminder of going back to, if we, we have some confusion at times, perhaps, of, of, of salvation. It is, how much is the responsibility of man versus the sovereignty of God? And now, just to you know, remind us back into chapter two, you, he made alive. He did the work. Let's not forget that he did the work. Yes, we have responsibility, but God does the work. He made alive. And these words in your Bible, they may be italics. He made alive. They were not included in original manuscripts, but in all translations, they are implied. As we would study and see this, these words are implied. You, he made alive. And what it's doing is it is connecting these next several verses to each other. This is kind of the starting point of the next paragraph in Paul's letter. And you, he made alive. In this next section, we're going to be talking about really the difference of being dead and being alive. And what it looks like to be in Christ in that sense. It brings this together as a collective thought understanding what it's all about, understanding the purpose of salvation that we talked so much about in chapter one. It is to bring dead things to life. And we will be reminded of that throughout the book of Ephesians. Remembering, of course, that we cannot make ourselves alive and we did not. He made us alive. So now... The problem of the past. Number one, we were dead. 
In you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. We were dead. We have to realize that. We need to start there. Sometimes we try to come to God thinking that we have something to offer. We think we're pretty good. We think we've got things mostly figured out in life. And maybe we're a good person. We, we give to charity. We do nice things. We're kind. We don't, we don't do bad things on our terms of what is good or bad. And because of that, we think, hey, well, yeah, I come to God and I've got something to offer. No, we have to first realize this. And you, he made alive. He does the work of bringing dead things to life. And what does it say? You were dead. That's the starting point. You were dead. We have to remember where we came from. Every single one of us. If you are in Christ, amen, you are made alive in Christ. But if you are made alive, that means you have to admit that you were once dead. In order for something to be made alive, it must be declared dead. We need to admit that we are dead in our trespass and sin. Trespass, the word means falling aside when one should be upright. That is the translation here, falling aside from truth or uprightness. It's a word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5 to describe Adam's disobedience. In Romans 5.15, it says this, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by, one, by, by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. We see, of course, a contrast there in Romans chapter 5 between what is even said of the first Adam and the second Adam in Jesus. And in the first Adam, sin entered the world, and sin brought death. There was no intention of death being in the world. God created all things perfect. But sin brought separation from God. It, it broke that perfection and it brought death. And Paul uses the same word of trespass to fall aside from uprightness is the same description that Paul uses in both of these things. Speaking of Adam, that Adam trespassed the word trespass is a term of the law. And the law is to show us how terrible our sin is. And looking at Adam, we recognize that sin brought death. And now we, at times, we feel that, that hit on us. We are influenced. When we face death, it hurts but when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and when those who die had a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's great hope. 
And we don't have to sorrow as those without hope because we have Jesus. We don't have to face the sting of death. Yes, it may hurt for a moment, but it does not have power or dominion over us in Christ. The word here for sins, this is meaning simply missing the mark. That's what the word sin is, to miss the mark. That means anything aside from perfection. It is a word that is, that is translated in the sense of an archer who is shooting his bow and he hits the bullseye. Anything other than the bullseye is missing that mark. It's anything aside from perfection. And then Paul also says in Romans, of course, all have sinned. And, that, and he says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Sinning is falling short of the glory of God. The natural consequences of missing the mark of sin and of falling aside from um, uprightness of trespass The natural consequences are death. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we live in a world that everybody feels entitled to something. We think we are owed something. We deserve something good. And certainly, we deserve nothing bad. And when when there's bad things that happen to us, we are offended and we think it's not fair. Romans 6, 23 tells us otherwise. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. In our trespass and sin, we are already dead. So therefore, in our, in our natural state, we are dead in our trespass and sin. We were essentially rebels and failures. This is what Paul is drawing attention to. This, you were dead. You were in sin and trespass. You know, if we were to create something, maybe you're a builder, a carpenter, and you want to build something, you're going to go and you're going to find the best materials you can find, right? You make sure your saw is all operational. Maybe you put a new blade on it. You know, your, your tools are all fine-tuned and ready to go. And then you're going to go pick out your lumber. And you're not going to just grab whatever and throw it on your cart and then throw, you know, pay for it, throw it in the truck. No, if you're, if you're creating something, you're going to take it, you're going to look at it, you pick it up, see, oh, that one's bowed, get rid of that one. You keep, you go through the pile. You pick out your lumber. You, you take care of it. You bring it home. You, you build what you're going to build. You pick out the best material. But listen, guys, God, the creator of the universe, created, first of all, the world out of nothing. And then he creates new life. And what does he choose for his materials? Dead people. He makes dead things come to life and he chooses the absolute worst materials that you could find. That's who God is. Verse two, we continue. He says that 
in which you, so you are in your sin and your trespass, right? You he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So in this place of trespass and sin, meaning you are living in a life that is ruled by sin, Before Christ, that's what we once were. All of us, we were dead. Before Christ, we were dead. Before Christ, we were ruled by sin. And in that place, now remember it, before Christ, in in this idea here, in which, in trespass and sin is the opposite of all that we studied in chapter one, which is being in Christ. In trespass and sin is complete polar opposite of being in Christ. But in which, in that sin, in your, the living a life that was, you were dead, we walked. We walked according to the course of the world. Now, this is again the past. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have fellowship with him, you are in Christ, this is all past tense. If you do not, this is present tense. And this, remember, is a word for the church, for believers, for the saints. And so Paul says, you walked, in the past tense, you walked according to the course of this world. Number two, within the past is, not only were we dead, we were dumb. Sounds harsh, I know. But listen, we were in step with the world, walking according to The course of the world is walking in step and unity with the world. You might say, well, no, no, I I was better than most people. No, you were walking in step with the world. And maybe you are still walking in step with the world. We were dumb. Aligning ourselves with the world is foolish. The course of this world is translated really to the way of this world or the spirit of the world, which, as the Bible would repeatedly say, is at enmity with God. We are keeping God at more than arm's length. We are pushing him away when we are in step with the world. So you once walked, speaking of this this past tense again is an old, the old man under the influence of sin and under the spirit of the world. Meaning that if this is speaking in the past tense, then we should now be different than we were before. We should be changed because we are made alive in Christ. Think about it this way. Would you want to stay dead And this is what Paul, he's putting it all in the past tense to say you were once, you were dead. You were dumb. Uh, You were walking in step with the world. You want to stay dead? When Jesus called Lazarus forth out of the tomb, he said, come forth. And he said, take off your grave clothes. Don't walk any longer as a dead man. Take off the grave clothes. Did Lazarus respond? Yes, yes. 
He came forth out of the tomb and he took off the grave clothes. Because who would want to stay dead if they have been made alive? Recognize this is what we have been given spiritually. But yet so many still walk around with their grave clothes on. Looking like dead men. Well, further, he says, then it's not even, it's not just that you walked according to the course of this world, but also that you walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Man, this just keeps getting worse. This is speaking about being under the influence of Satan himself. Before Christ, apart from Christ, without relationship with Christ, you walked according to your sinful desires. You walked under the influence of the devil. We were once under that direct influence. Our next point here within our past is that we were deceived. Satan is the great deceiver, the father of lies. Under his influence, we were deceived. Looking again back to Genesis, under the influence of the serpent, of Satan, Eve was deceived and then adam took he trespassed he went he just went for it he didn't have to be deceived but we were deceived under the influence of the devil further it says that then that this is what the work of the devil the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience the next point here is that we were not only deceived but we were disobedient and speaking of that in a sense, not to say, man, well, you, if you disobey, if you ever disobey, man, you've lost your salvation. That's not what it's saying. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being under the influence of the devil, the deceiver, and in that place, we will walk in disobedience. Under the influence of Satan, we are sons of disobedience. And yes, sometimes we may be disobedient, but not living in disobedience. Satan has influence over the life of the unbeliever. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can speak of this all as past tense. You were once, you were dead, dumb, deceived, disobedient. Verse three, and it says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. So under the influence of the devil, we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul saying, among whom we all once, we are all in the same 
place. A group of people who were, in the past tense, in fellowship with the world, under the influence of Satan. We were all once in the same place. Paul, as he's writing this, is including himself in this statement. He's not just saying, as he's writing this letter, well, you all this, and you this, and you were once deceived, and you were once dead, and all. He's saying, no, it's we all once were under this influence. We all once, under the influence of the devil, operated according to the lust of the flesh. You see, this all may sound really harsh, but what Paul is doing and what we need to be reminded of is our sin is gross. That's our next point. We were disgusting. It may sound harsh, but we need to see our sin for what it is. We should be disgusted by the death by the disobedience, we should be disgusted by the lusts of the flesh. Conducting ourselves in the lusts of flesh, meaning what Paul is translating here is it is endless morality. That's what the lust of the flesh is. Lust is just, I want more. Feed my flesh. We studied on Wednesday this week in Genesis chapter 25, Esau and Jacob. And what does Esau say to his brother? He says, feed me. Satisfy me. My flesh, I'm hungry. I'm going to die. And in that, he gave up his rightful inheritance with no perspective of eternity. But we were disgusting, and our sin is disgusting. Conducting ourselves in the lust of the flesh is, is endless morality, and that is disgusting. Sometimes we, we look around the world, and we see the sin going on, and we are shocked. I can't believe it. I can't believe people would be so wicked. Should we be surprised? Paul says it is gross. The lust of the flesh is gross. John also writes, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Paul's speaking of the same thing that John writes about there in 1 John. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's about our purity, it's about power, it's about pride. All these things that the world is literally trying to entice you with. Money, sex, and power. That's That's what makes the world go round. But that's not what makes our world go round because that should all be past tense. And we would say, oh, that is gross, right? Do we look at our own sin and say that's gross? The fallen human nature gravitates toward low things, to gross Lusts of the body and contaminating lusts of the mind. 
further, it, go, it gets even worse. And fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. Just as the others. Just like the rest of the world. We were once just like them. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. Our nature made us children of wrath. Just as the world. Our next point here within the past is we were destructive. Children of wrath. Full of wrath toward one another. And that wrath is not just about one another. It is self-destruction. When we live our lives according to the flesh, we are on a path for self-destruction. We speak so much here of, of the sin nature. Born of sinful parents into a sinful world. We say this all the time. You'll hear many pastors say the same. You don't have to teach a child how to sin. I have four I did not give them lessons. Well, they definitely learn from me. I guarantee that. But I did not sit them down and instruct them on what sin is and how to sin. Before they could even understand, they were selfish. They said mine, or they said nothing. They just screamed in our faces because they couldn't communicate properly. Imagine... How infuriating that is as a parent. And how infuriating it might be to God when dealing with our sin, our sinful nature. And we're just screaming in his face. But we don't have to teach our kids. We don't have to teach them how to sin. Go serve in the children's ministry. You'll see lots of sin at an early age. But because of that, we were destined for destruction. We are children of wrath, bringing wrath upon ourselves and deserving of God's wrath. So, the problem of the past. We were dead. We were dumb. We were deceived. We were disobedient. We were disgusting. And we were destined for destruction. Now, it doesn't end there. The blessing of the present, our second point in the message. Verse four. But God. I think we just need an amen to that. Amen? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Guys, that list that I just gave you, it's horrible. These first three verses, it's bad news. We look at, we were once caught up in the most miserable bad news you can imagine. But God, this is right here. Ephesians 2.4, you should highlight it, underline it, put a star next to it in your Bible. 
This is perhaps one of the biggest buts in all the Bible and one of the biggest in all of history. The word but, it represents change. Something contrary to a previous situation. And this previous situation is really bad. Death, destruction, disobedience. It's terrible. But God brings change. God brings life. He brings restoration. He brings redemption. But God, who is rich in mercy, it's who he is. It's not even just saying, but God who has a lot of mercy. It's God who is rich and in mercy. It's his nature is merciful. And here we are again, speaking of the riches of God. God's economy. We've talked about the riches of his grace, and now we're talking about the fact that he is rich in mercy. He is the abundance of mercy. Not getting what, is, what we deserve, and as we establish, Romans 6 tells us, the wages of sin is death. But, there's another one. Paul has lots of them. Giving us perspective of Death of sin of the old man and giving us a new perspective of what it is to be in Christ. To be able to say, but God, he has changed everything. Why is God so generous in his, with his mercy? Because of his riches because it's who he is, it is his nature, but then it says also, because of his great love with which he loved us. His love, his love is using his riches and investing those riches into our eternity. As we said of his grace, he spent it all in one place. The same of his mercy, of his love. He took that love and he just poured it out. His riches are investing into not his future, but our future. And remembering, though, according to these first three verses, that we are not deserving of mercy and we are not very lovable but we are desperate. And in his love, he is merciful. We can't make ourselves lovable. We can't make ourselves deserving of mercy. We can only recognize that we were dead. We can only recognize how desperate we are. And his love, his mercy are his alone. And he gives freely. Verse five, 
continuing, he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Even when, Paul gives a quick reminder of the past. And now he's connecting the dots between verses one to three and now verses four and five. Even when, now rewind for a second, think back to what I just explained to you. So even in that state, in the midst of all of your, your deadness and your destruction and your misery, even there, when you came and you have nothing to offer, even then, he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he loved us. The only requirement of being brought to life is to truly be dead. That's when he makes us alive. He makes us alive together with Christ. With Christ. We're talking about fellowship. And our greatest fellowship with Christ as believers is the resurrection. And that's what we're talking about. Being made alive is all about the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Therefore, he can make dead things come alive. Together with Christ is that great fellowship of the resurrection. And living in the resurrected life. To be able to say, but God, he has changed me. Crucifying the flesh with Christ and being resurrected with Christ. Walking in the newness of life. And then Paul so beautifully just drops it in there. By grace. By grace you have been saved. And he'll say it again in just a couple verses we're not getting into today. By grace you have been saved, reminding us of the grace. Now, it's, it's important that we remember that because we might think, well, we're saved by his love. Well, we're saved by his grace. It's his grace that does the work. His, his love is that he gives us grace. By grace we have been saved. And Paul makes sure to drop it in here that we would understand it is God's favor, not man's merit. Grace meaning unmerited favor. We are so undeserving. And Paul gives that reminder time and time again that we are undeserving but God. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. But God is, as we've seen here so far, is rich in mercy. He's in love with us. And he's full of grace. Verse 6. And, even more than that, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even more than that, he raised us up together. Together. Meaning, as believers, we are raised up together as Jesus prayed for the unity of believers, that we are all on the same level of needing the grace of God. He has raised us up together. 
and made us sit in the heavenly places, the same heavenly places that are the origin of the great spiritual blessings as we studied a few weeks ago. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's where the spiritual blessings come from, and that is when it's all said and done, if we are in Christ, we will be seated in Christ. Seated in the heavenly places. Here in the present, we have been seated in that place. In Christ, not yet with Christ, but in Christ. Meaning that in Christ, it is Christ who is actually there. He is actually seated there. And if we are in Christ, then we are seated in the heavenly places. Recognizing this, our citizenship is heaven. We are living for eternity. Which brings us to our final point, the hope of the future. We have the problem of the past, the blessing of the present, and the hope of the future. Verse 7 that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ages to come is the future statement of hope. That in the ages to come, so through all this, we were once dead. In a place of misery, we are Redeemed in Christ, we, in relationship with Christ, we are redeemed. We are seated. And now in the ages to come, what Paul's saying is, you know what, it's, it gets even better. You've, you, you, are, you experience spiritual blessing in this life, but you'll experience even greater blessing in the ages to come, in eternity. And what we see here in this, this future statement, the ages to come, is it's not just for us here and now, it is for all of believers, for all eternity. God will forever continue to do what is his nature which is to show, as it says here, his exceeding riches. His exceeding riches, as we've established throughout chapter one and now in chapter two, is grace and mercy. For all eternity, God will continue to show grace and mercy. We might think, well, sometimes doesn't he show judgment? It's actually mercy. His judgment is his standard and he gives mercy in the midst of his judgment. God will forever continue to show his exceeding riches. You know what? We can't begin to scratch the surface here and now. It takes eternity for God to show his riches. Grace and mercy. As it says here, kindness, which is mercy. 
And this is demonstrated in Christ. And it's enough. And it's even better than that. And he so greatly desires to give us that grace and that kindness, that mercy. I'll close with this quote by Charles Spurgeon. So is it with the grace of God. He has as much grace as you want, and he has a great deal more than that. The Lord has as much grace as a whole universe will require, but he has vastly more. He overflows all the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his store of mercy. There will remain an incalculably precious mine of mercy as full as when he first began to bless the sons of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the picture of your grace. We thank you that you show us in your word here today how desperately we need you. And we are amazed and we are thankful that we can be saved by grace. We thank you for the work of your grace. And we pray, Lord, I pray right now for anybody here in this room, anybody who's watching online right now who is still living in trespass and sin, who is still living in death, not in Christ. Would you bring life? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then that's you. I'm sorry to say it, but I can't let this day, this message pass by without giving you an opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus. To be able to say, those things are in the past. I was dead. But now I am alive. I was blind, but now I see. You can be made alive in Christ today. Enter in to relationship with him. If you'd like to do that right now, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And if you'd like to do that right now, I'm gonna call you to raise your hand. Say, I want that relationship. I recognize here and now I am dead and I need to be made alive. So if you'd like to do that, would you put up your hand and I'll lead you in a prayer to make a commitment to Jesus, to give your life to him that he might make you alive.
My prayer is that each of you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that you can speak of these things as they are in the past. And that you are now, you have been made alive through relationship with Jesus. And you have fellowship with him. So my charge to you, encouragement to you, take off the grave clothes. Keep them off. Walk in the newness of life. Don't allow for those things to creep their way back in and to have influence over us because if we've been made alive, why would we want to go back into the tomb? Walk in newness of life. Let's all stand. Let's glorify the Lord together.